Welcome to Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, Haley, we have an interesting conversation ahead of us with the newly minted liberal leader of the BC Liberals. That is, of course, Andrew Wilkinson. Yeah, we had him on our radio show like we did all liberal leadership candidates, uh, I guess, a couple months ago now. Now he's actually in position, so I'm sure he had some interesting things to say definitively of what he plans on doing now as the party's new leader. Yeah, we tackled everything from the BC-Alberta pipeline spat that's going on mm-hmm. right now. We also tackled cannabis. We've got more details from the framework the province has unveiled. He's not happy. Uh, again, uh, he is the leader of the opposition now. Sure. So he's not happy with everything the go- uh, government's uh, doing. We also talked to him about ICBC, which I think is uh, one thing that uh, I-, I think the liberal government uh, that was previously in power maybe asked to take more responsibility for. We'll get his opinions on that uh, as well. But uh, Welcome back to the program. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We're the daily business news program from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Over the weekend, Vancouver, Kilchana, MLA, Andrew Wilkinson emerged as the winner of the BC Liberal leadership race. Joining us to discuss BC's economy and his objectives as leader of the opposition it's BC Liberal leader, Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, what do you want to get going on first here, Andrew? Why don't we talk a little bit about what's most current in the news and the uh, the escalating BC-Alberta. It's almost becoming a bit of a trade war. Um, what's, your, uh, what's your observation about what you've seen so far and what has to happen? Well, uh, you don't want to get too carried away, but this is an embarrassment. I mean, this is the sort of thing that should not happen. It shows a lack of maturity amongst um, two premiers. And, of course, our job as the opposition and the and uh, Premier Horgan's job as the Premier British Columbia is to serve the interests of the people of D.C. And that is not happening by picking a war uh, over something as minor as this with the province of Alberta. And the federal government gets implicated in this as well. They are the ones who who approve interprovincial pipelines at their jurisdiction. And somehow the Horgan NDP government has decided that they don't like the rule of law in Canada, so they're going to just pick a fight with Alberta. And of course, Alberta, whether advisedly or not, has decided to penalize the British Columbia wine industry. So what do the people of British Columbia get out of this? They get investor uncertainty. They get a complete uh, disregard for the rule of law. They get job loss in the Okanagan. They get antagonized Alberta uh, civilians who would otherwise come and spend on tourism in British Columbia. This is a lose-lose proposition for the people of British Columbia. And the Horgan NDP government needs to wake up and start to act like adults. Now, I know you're a lawyer, so you don't use the term rule of law uh, unadvisedly, but is what John Horgan and George Heyman uh, done here, is is it actually um, illegal or is it just simply a, a disregard? There's a long, long tradition in Canada of lawsuits about what was known as the division of powers. Most of it was resolved by about 1960. And the clear uh, jurisdiction over interprovincial pipelines is federal. And the Horgan NDP government has decided to try and do indirectly what they cannot do directly. And that's a a phrase from the courtroom. What it is, is that um, they are trying to say they need to study something more as a way of blocking an already approved federal project. 
Imagine if they did that for an airport or for a telecom company or for another thing that under federal jurisdiction, such as uh, pharmaceutical approvals of uh, the safety and efficacy of a drug. They would quickly say, you can't do that. That's federal. What are you doing? But instead, all they're going to do is uh, raise the prospect of a lengthy lawsuit, which uh, British Columbia would probably eventually lose, further cost, delay, and embarrassment. And we just have to think on this program particularly of the message all of this sends to investors. Is British Columbia a place where you can do business and rely upon the well-established norms in the law of Canada? Or is it a place where anything can happen? You know, we don't want to be Ecuador or Angola. It's where it's good and safe to do business. And that is not what the Horgan government is doing. And in the process, they're uh, damaging the interests of British Columbians, antagonizing Albertans, and leaving the impression Ottawa that uh, British Columbia has gone goofy, that it's a place where nothing can be relied upon because the BC government might do something irrational and unexpected. So they have essentially made fools of all of us. And they're going to have trouble backing down now because the Alberta NDP government has decided to ramp up this dispute because Rachel Notley's political future depends upon it. So we're going to see all kinds of noisy rhetoric across the border and the only people going to lose in this are people in British Columbia. Is it possible, though, for Justin Trudeau to, to stand up yet? I mean, again, these are only proposals. This is a plan. This is a review. Uh, you know, has, has the British Columbia government crossed the line in such a way that the prime minister can do something about it now? Well, you can be assured that in these days, there are very serious and lengthy phone calls going on between uh, senior officials in the Privy Council office in Ottawa and the governor of British Columbia, basically saying, look, we know what the rules of the game are. We know what the law is on the division of powers in uh, Canada. We know what the Canadian Constitution says. And how can we get you out of this embarrassing pickle that you created for yourself in British Columbia? Let's remember that John Horgan threw the first punch. He's the guy who started the barroom fight. Rachel Notley's kicked him in the shins now. And John Horgan said, well, no, there's no need to get into a fight. He started this fight, and he's going to have to end it. And it's sadly going to require the government of Canada to come in and talk sense to both of them. Well, the other thing that we're talking about this week, though, is the new cannabis framework. We're getting more details out on this. We see that the BC liquor liquor distribution branch is playing a big part in this. Is that the right place for this particular organization to be dealing with this cannabis industry that's going to be emerging here recreationally in Metro Vancouver and the entire province going forward? Well, I have the very same question because this idea in British Columbia that every piece of liquid alcohol has to go through the hands of government employees, the liquor distribution branch, is a bit arcane. And now they want to expand it into the future for another product, marijuana. And so, you know, anybody who's in the logistics and distribution business says, well, You might have done that in the Prohibition era as a way to make sure you're collecting taxes and that bad people aren't dealing with uh, contraband. But in the marijuana business, there's already a very well-established black market that has been there for 50 years. And if they create these um, unionized jobs for people to handle marijuana and shuffle it around and take their own time distributing it, all that does is encourage continuation of the black market. It drives up the cost base of the newly lawful marijuana business and makes it uh, less 
likely that we'll get any serious revenue off it because you've got to pay for this distribution system first and more likely that organized crime will continue to be involved in the black market for marijuana. We're going to be seeing a hybrid private public retail model going forward. Is that the kind of model that you want seen with the cannabis industry going forward here in British Columbia? Well, I said during the leadership campaign that my preference would be to take the existing BC government liquor stores and offer them for sale to the employees. We don't sell gasoline. We don't run travel agencies. Why are we in the business of retail liquor distribution when there's a perfectly viable private liquor distribution system? And the same thing applies to marijuana. Why would we get into another state-owned enterprise? And beyond that, in terms of the impression that's given to children, if the government is selling it, it must be okay. And it's well established that marijuana use, especially the potent forms are available now that weren't available 20 years ago, are not good for the developing brain. And when you have the state basically sanctioning and selling this product, it sends a message to young people that this is all hunky-dory. You know, it must be safe because the government's selling it. And that's something that I think where the, the government would be far better off as a stringent regulator um, as they do in aviation and other fields where they're not actually the operator. What do you think is going to happen to the Vancouver dispensaries, Andrew? Well, I'm hopeful that this completely renegade business that's making it all out to be fun and games and where we're not sure who's actually profiting from it will fizzle out. Uh, there may be some of them that are more credible that will be able to license themselves and become established within the framework of private operators in a tightly regulated environment. That remains to be seen. Yeah. We're talking, of course, to BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, who uh, won the top honour last weekend. Um, it seems as if Andrew Weaver puts out more news releases in opposition to John Horgan than he did about uh, when, you're, when your Liberals were in government. Um, his latest, of course, is that he has been uh, very, very touchy about the issue of LNG. Would, were he to pull the plug on John Horgan on LNG, would you be able to work with him? Well, that remains to be seen because uh, the Green Party has, on one hand, tried to portray itself as independent and thoughtful and evidence-based, as they keep saying. And on the other hand, they vote faithfully, loyally, and reliably with the NDP on every single thing that the NDP does. So what Andrew Weaver is trying to do is establish that he is not just a subset or a branch plant to the NDP. In my impression, he's not doing a very good job of that. And by putting out a lot of press releases and making a lot of noise, he purports to be independent, and then he turns around and caves. So we saw what happened in LNG. He said over my dead body, and he would bring down the government if LNG uh, were considered for export. And then a few days later, he said, oh, sorry, just a mix-up with John Horgan senior staff. Just kidding. That's not a mature political party that's ready to talk about being part of government, and yet we have them slavishly voting for the NDP on every topic. How ready would the Liberals be for an election today? Well, of course, I've just settled into the role of getting to know all the party machinery that I used to be familiar with when I was the president a few years ago. And so we will get ready to have uh, the team in place for an election whenever that might happen. That's our duty as the opposition when it's a minority government. And let's look at next Wednesday when there'll be a by-election in Kelowna West and we will hope to earn the confidence of British Columbians in Kelowna West and have Ben Stewart elected as the MLA, we will then have more MLAs than the other party in the House. Mm -hmm. And that raises the prospect of a very fragile minority government 
consisting of the Greens and the uh, NDP. And so we obviously have to get geared up for a potential election in no time. One of the issues that you guys are still grappling with from the last election is the whole Surrey question. You guys did lose a number of seats there. A lot of it comes down to, say, the taxi industry versus ride-hailing services, promises that were made and some people did not feel as if they were being kept. What do you perceive to be the future of this ride-hailing industry going forward in British Columbia? It seems like an inevitability at this part, but we still haven't seen much come out of it since the new government formed. Two aspects of this. First of all, we lost 10 seats in the Lower Mainland, and a few of them were in Surrey, but they were across the Lower Mainland. And that's because the NDP were doing a good job of talking to people in their living rooms about pocketbook issues. And we're going to have to do that to be much more relevant to people's daily lives. More particularly on the taxi business, I've said consistently in this work up to the leadership and since then, we have to make sure that whoever is carrying passengers in British Columbia is appropriately licensed, appropriately trained and skilled, and appropriately insured. And the actual dispatch system, whether they're using their own uh, one app or eCab or the yellow or blacktop one or or um, Lyft, those are going to change over time. That's the nature of the technology industry. I'm more concerned about the safety in, of British Columbians and making sure the insurance is in place. So I've suggested the taxi industry wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to insure your cab for the whole year at a cost of $35,000 in insurance? Maybe it can be done on a per week or per day basis, which would give them surge capacity. So they'd be able to say, well, we have two cabs in waiting and we'll insure them for this shift or this week. And that would give them all kinds of capacity to carry more passengers. So we need to be a lot more creative in this space. It turned into this kind of simplistic, um, are you for or against Uber conversation we need to have a wholesale review of this field so that we can provide better service to British Columbians. Andrew Wilkinson's our guest. We're going to continue our conversation with a moment here. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, Give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600, or else check them out on their website at manningelliott.ca. And up next, it's Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the BC Liberals. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. We are the daily business news program from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and joining me today is politics and resources reporter Nelson Bennett, my colleague here. Nelson, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. And also, I think maybe our more importantly is our uh, guest today. It's Andrew Wilkinson. He is, as of this weekend, the brand new BC Liberal leader. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the show once again. Thanks for having me. So we left off on a conversation about transportation, of course, with this uh, Uber debate that's been going on for a while here in British Columbia. But I, I want to carry on that conversation with regards to uh, transportation. ICBC, we have a $935 million net loss so far this fiscal year. I want to hear it from you. How did we get into this position and what are the solutions that you think are going to be necessary to pull us out? We do see the current government trying to find a way here. Well, you have to remember that ICBC being a crown corporation, its uh, financial statements are audited every year at the end of the fiscal year. And so in prior fiscal years, this is no news. Sometimes ICBC made some money, sometimes it didn't. It went up and down. And then suddenly David Eby has announced some kind of catastrophe that's happened. 
And I, uh, I'm a little skeptical of Mr. Eby's business math. Um, he tends to make some very dramatic statements, and then they're forgotten six weeks later. So we'll see where all that pans out. But the underlying concern about ICBC, it's a 44-year-old state-run monopoly that was created by the NDP, and in my view, it's probably outlived its usefulness. It needs a root and branch overhaul to make sure it's actually serving the purpose that it needs to, which is to provide affordable motor insurance to British Columbians and appropriate claims compensation for accident victims. So that's the goal. And uh, British Columbia is unique in having this model of state-run insurer in North America. And so let's have a look at the whole thing from the root and branch out. A good example of this is British Columbia, as far as I know, is the only jurisdiction in North America that ensures not the driver, but the owner of the vehicle. And maybe that's part of the issue. Maybe we should look at that and get the whole thing on a more uh, sound commercial footing. There's talk about, do you want to privatize ICBC? Well, ICBC is a money-losing insurance company that is essentially worthless. So the idea you're going to sell it to somebody is probably an illusion. Our guest today is Andrew Wilkinson, BC Liberal leader. And Andrew, you bring up the point that you know we, we have a lot of questions with ICBC. You're looking at you know creating um, a closer examination of it here. But if hypothetically you were premier, uh, would you consider, uh, as you said, a kind of uh, expansion of the private options that are here in British Columbia? Maybe a, a somewhat of a shrinking of the options that we have here with ICBC. I think it's time for a total review of ICBC, not tinkering around the edges and say, do we want to continue with this state-owned monopoly option? Is that the best thing for drivers and for accident victims? What are the other options? What are the best practices around North America, in particular in Canada, and modernize the thing? Because it's been stuck in the mud for 44 years and somehow people are expected to accept that it's doing a great job because it's always been there. Clearly, it's not doing a great job. It's losing money, and it's uh, leaving a lot of frustrated people in dealing with it. And so if your premiums start to rise, you start to say, why do I have to do this? Why do we put up with this? That's a very valid question. Yeah, Andrew, I was wondering, the first, uh, the NDP's first full budget comes down soon. I'm just wondering what you think may be in it, or rather what you fear might be in it. Well, NDP budgets usually contain some rude surprises, and it's part of their philosophy that the state knows better than the individual, that the state can do a better job of using your money than you can. And clearly, there's some merit to that in things like air ambulance services, where they do a good job of getting people around based on taxpayer funding. But the NDP seem to think that it's even better to have a, a state-run marijuana sales organization, a state-run uh, marijuana distribution organization. So we have to be very vigilant that the NDP aren't getting carried away on their premise that it's a great idea to have the government do more and more of the things that the private sector normally does. They also, of course, maintain that uh, a dollar in your pocket would be better as a tax dollar in their pocket. And we are, as a party, very skeptical of that because it leads to the kind of rising tax rates and, and uh, increasing state involvement in the economy that leads to a decline in opportunities and actually hurts the affordability of British Columbia. Part of affordability in this province is making sure that people's taxes are affordable. Well, on that affordability issue, I think one of the things that many people might be expecting from the budget is addressing the housing affordability issues that are affecting not just Metro Vancouver, but this is seeping into southern Vancouver Island as well. 
how do we begin to address the housing affordability crisis? Is that affecting not just, you know, general people around here, but especially the younger generations here? There are many layers to this question. I always start off by saying when I moved here as a kid, there are 1.6 million people in British Columbia, and they're now 4.7 million. There are another million people coming, mostly to the metro Vancouver area. Where are they going to go? We need to answer this as a society and arrange for an appropriate growth in the housing supply. That means getting the municipal permitting system sorted out. I've talked about tax incentives for construction of residential rental housing because most of us live in rental housing at some point in our life and sometimes for all of our lives, and there isn't enough rental housing out there. The market is way too tight. So we need to make sure that there's an expanded supply of housing to cope with all of those tens of thousands of people who are moving here every year. Have you seen much effect come from certain measures that the previous government, the one that you were part of, a cabinet minister, stirred there, just with regards to, say, the foreign buyer's tax, for example? Have those mechanisms really done much to improve the housing situation that's going on here in Metro Vancouver? A few angles on that. Now, the foreign buyer's tax is applied in Metro Vancouver at a rate of 15%, and the market slowed down and plateaued significantly because of that. Now, uh, presumably that was a direct cause of the tax. The market then increased again in 2017, but now has slowed down dramatically for single family dwellings at the higher end of the market. And their houses are staying on the market for considerably longer than they have in the past and the prices are declining. The tax didn't change. It's just that the market goes through changes and we're gonna have to see where that's going. The wider issue I think is, uh, is there a way to uh, slow down the influx of offshore capital. Well, when you look at Canada, it's a nation built on immigrants. I'm an immigrant. We take in about a quarter of a million immigrants a year. And one of the issues we have is if you're going to, I like the NDP are muttering about, and as they've done in New Zealand under a Labour government, they have said, oh, let's just ban foreign buyers. Well, there are tens of thousands of people coming into Canada with permanent residence status because of investor immigrant programs in Quebec and PEI. And a lot of them end up in BC. So the idea that somehow you're going to stop people from buying real estate here is a bit of an illusion when so many people become our permanent residents every year and they cannot be discriminated against on the basis of purchasing housing. And we've spoken a bit about privatization and the role of the private sector in, in public services. What about health care, public health care? Uh, we've had a court case dragging on now over the issue of private clinics providing health care. It's been dragging on for a very long time now. Regardless of the outcome of that court case, what do you think the role should be, if any, of the private sector in the delivery of public health care? Well, British Columbia for a long time has had an arrangement whereby public health care is funded through taxpayer dollars. And if a doctor wants to opt out of the publicly funded system, they're free to do so and charge whatever they please. The Copeland Medical Clinic does that in Vancouver, providing general practice care for people who want to pay whatever they want to, to those people who completely opted out of the medical services plan. As I say, that's been around for a long time. That's not very controversial. It um, addresses a a demand and it uh, preserves the, the public system. So the idea that somehow we need to completely overhaul or blow up or change our publicly funded system ignores the experience of things like kidney dialysis. No one is going to go into the business of kidney dialysis because the costs are astronomical and that's why it's run by the government because it has to be spread out over the entire population to make it affordable. 
The only way you can afford to deal with people who need dialysis is for the state to be involved. And in the middle there, you get things like major trauma centers. Those operate in the United States on a private basis, and they're stunningly astronomically expensive. We run them as a state-run phenomenon in Canada and run them very, very well because they're only affordable if everybody's chipping in, and that's done through taxation. So I'm skeptical that we need to change the system. I've worked in it. It always needs tweaking and improvement. There are issues about which drugs to pay for and which surgical procedures to pay for. But nonetheless, um, the uh, life expectancy of British Columbians keeps on rising. We have excellent health outcomes. We have a good, strong medical system. We need more access to primary care and doctor's offices and nurse practitioners. And that's been a major focus of my platform is to provide the ability for family doctors in particular to aggregate into business units that would then have a much more efficient front office where I can book online and change things overnight. We need to change the rules to provide prescription renewals online so they don't have to make an appointment on the telephone and go and hang around for an hour and wait for a piece of paper. So there are many ways we can improve our medical system, but wholesale privatization is not one of them. Last question before you let you go. I think a lot of British Columbians, they want to know who Andrew Wilkinson is. You mentioned you you are an immigrant. You're originally from Australia. But tell us what your leadership style is going to be. How do you want to lead the province as the leader of the opposition going forward? Well, I'm a very inclusive and very humble person. I need to keep learning all the time from my colleagues in caucus, from British Columbians, from experts. And that's the, the greatest attraction of uh, work in, in public life and in government is you get to touch so many files and you have to learn. You can't pretend to know all the answers. The other thing is we have to be humble and get around the communities all over British Columbia and make sure we're listening and learning because you will never understand what's going on in Seashells or Fort St. John unless you're on the ground listening to their concerns and understanding their way of life. So that's the, the uh, starting point for me in a leadership style. And then if I'm fortunate enough to, to move on to the next job and become the Premier of British Columbia, it's going to be a matter of making sure we serve the interests of everyone in British Columbia so we have that sense of excitement, of a bright future, of people's ability to get ahead and enjoy their lives right here in BC. Well, excellent. We look forward to talking to you more as this progresses here. I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me. look forward to seeing you again. That's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, and you're listening to Business in Vancouver on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Nelson Bennett. And that was BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson here on the Business in Vancouver podcast. It was very fascinating to talk to him. He gave us a lot of time, so I'm uh, Mm -hmm. happy to know that maybe he would uh, come back future dates and uh, go into more depth with us even more as we see, you know, this new government progress. Yeah, and it, it comes at right in advance of the NDP's first full budget, too. So there's, there's yep. a lot going on. I mean, you talked about ICBC, uh, the LNG issue. More broadly, you can even look to questions around NAFTA and trade. It's a very interesting time in politics. So uh, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be someone who returns on the show in the months ahead. Yeah. So just ask everybody, if you like this show, subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Leave a review as well. Haley, if anybody wants to find you online, what's the best way to do so? 
you can head on over to BIV.com. We have, uh, we keep saying it's a new website. It's new to us. It's uh, several weeks in now, but a redesigned website. So we're, you can. Worth looking into for, for sure. anybody who hasn't already. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have any feedback too, because it's new, uh, we're always welcome and open to hearing that. You can also personally connect with me on social media. My handle is at Haley Wooden. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Reporton. That's R E P O R T O N. Don't forget, this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. I want to thank you for listening to us on the Business in Vancouver podcast.